My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. My friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for yet another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'm pretty excited about this. This is episode number 30 of our regular full-length episodes. Been doing this for a while. We've got a long way to go, and we've come a long way, but hey, this for me is pretty pivotal, and I have a really fun guest today. Actually... I, I love this guest. This is my son, Ethan, who joined me for episode 24, Is Nothing Sacred. Hello, Ethan. Hello. Hello. Just this weekend, I did have another guest lined up who unfortunately got sick. We're still getting sick. And, and, and no COVID, but you know. So Ethan's been home with me for a couple days as he's been feeling kind of under the weather. And while we were just commiserating about being sick uh he said hey can we listen to my episode that we did a while ago i said yeah and we started listening he goes oh dad can we do this again and i was like yes right now absolutely (laughs) so here's something that uh my friends and listeners we can talk about just a little bit before we get into the big topic for today uh as you may recall if you've listened to episode 24 you know that ethan is very fond of the musical sweeney todd the demon barber of fleet street now just recently he and i have started watching these again i have a recording on dvd of the angela lansbury and oh geez i can't even remember who it was it wasn't the first uh, len Carew, but the the next guy who followed him up uh george something uh i feel terrible that i can't think of that george w bush i sure hope it was not george <laughs> w bush that really wouldn't be a very good show um but Ethan is very interested now in comparing versions of this show. So, Ethan, uh, before we get into today, into today's topic, t- tell me what your current thoughts are on Sweeney Todd. Amazing. Amazing? Well, both ones are amazing. Okay. But I prefer the movie. Okay, so we're comparing the, the stage version to the Tim Burton film that was released in 2008? Something like that. 2006? 2010. 2010. Okay. So, Ethan really appreciates that. So, tell me what you think of that. I think it was a really good story. Like, mm-hmm. Well, it's the same story. It, like, it is the same story, but, like, the characters are more detailed than in the play. Okay. Like, okay, so more detailed in a way that you might recognize. Yeah, like, okay. uh, the play version of Sweeney Todd, it was, like, slicked, like, Two parts slicked to the side. Oh, so like the the character Sweeney Todd, his hair was like slicked to the side, right down the middle, like a good part. Okay. And in the movie, he has poop, like poop, yeah, black like poofy hair. Yeah, it's and curly, and that one white shock of hair that goes right over his temple. I prefer that one over the play. Okay, tell me, what, what what's with that? It just looks like he's actually a murderer. Oh, Okay. It makes, like, once you see that, it mm-hmm. makes you think of a murderer. Right. Well, okay, okay. But, you know, maybe part of the the design of that is not to make him look so much like a murderer. Because he doesn't know he is one, really, until halfway through when he starts, you know, when he doesn't get to kill Judge Turpin that time. And then just starts killing people out of revenge anyway. True. Right? I don't know. I don't know. But I think that's a very valid point. I do... 
to a degree, appreciate the film version of Toby a little bit more because it's an actual boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that that I think that's better than just a short human. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good point. Good point, but tell me why. Like cuz cuz that could be anybody. That could be a guy in his 40s who just happens to look younger because he's smaller. True. And and so you would not prefer that. You'd prefer seeing an actual child play that role. Yes. Okay. Okay. Why is that? Because because it makes more sense. Well, yeah, it's truer to like the the story, I guess. Okay. At the end of the movie, like I think the kid is really smart, mm-hmm. like going in the vents. Yeah, like in the sewers and yes, being able to hide, and, and it does that in the play too. Um, but he comes out like an absolutely changed person. Especially, you see that in the play very, very much. Like the stage version, he is no longer a child. You know? And spoilers, folks. Um, he becomes something of a vengeful murderer himself. So And kills Sweeney Todd. Oh, there, we said it. Okay. Well. I don't care. <laughs> well... Awesome. I love that you are really thinking about that. You're like thinking about what it looks like to do certain types of plays and everything. But today we're going to talk about something that not a lot of people think about when you're talking about theater history. Okay. This is going to bounce us around quite a bit through several levels. So this is going to be kind of a lesson for you, my son, in theater history. So we'll go ahead and just jump right into it here and I'll ask you right away. Do you know what box seats are in theater? Oh, uh, so uh, in those like great big... Great big theater spaces, yeah. Yeah, there's like uh, ones on the side, mm-hmm. and that's where people who pay more oh, to see the play. okay, okay. So Sit. not having been to a lot of big houses like that, you know what those are already. That's pretty yes. awesome. So... Um, yeah, yeah. And so what do you think of, of the people who sit in box seats? Um, rich. The rich. <laughs> or sometimes they're kind of more important people. Like yes. Maybe they're people who... Mayor. A mayor, right. You know, if the president were to come, True. that's probably where a president would sit, right? Just somebody... Or, you know, let's say uh, you're doing a production of Sweeney Todd and, uh, you know, God rest his soul, Stephen Sondheim shows up. Well, of course he's going to sit in a box seat because he wrote the play. <laughs> he wrote the thing. Perfect. All right. So I want to talk about that connotation of box seats being only for rich people today. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. To begin with, we're going to have to go back to the medieval period, more specifically towards the end of the medieval period when theatrical performance moved out of the church and more or less stayed outside. Okay? Yes. Now, while it was housed within the church, theater was generally performed in front in the front of the church, you know, where the altar is, and, and, yeah. and the parishioners could watch from the rows of pews. But as you may recall in my episode 5 called Secrets, meaning special effects, some churches were built so that the audience would stand in the middle of a large room, and the walls of this church were lined with small and unique set pieces, each representing a different scene of the story being told. So as an audience member, one was meant to stand and turn throughout the performance to focus attention on whatever scene was being played. <laughs> Does that seem silly to you? Here's your ticket. Now go stand in the middle of the room. And if I have to be in front of the barn, well, the barn is over in that corner. So you have to focus your attention on that corner. And now we're going to the church scene. And that's, oh, wait, it's on the other side of the room over here. And you have to turn your attention over there now. So just stand. Yep. (laughs) Crank your neck around. You can't see it. Ethan's like almost spasming right now. So, yeah. Uh, Now, this is where there might be a hole in my research in regards to what happened when theater moved out of the church and into the public forum. First of all, the plays were still specific stories from the Bible or, you know, tales of morality. 
Like in, Jesus. Yes. Generally, Jesus stories, or it might he be... He can walk on water. He's yeah, a magic man. Right. Or it might be something where, uh, you know, uh, they're telling a story about somebody struggling with his own personal beliefs and, and wondering whether or not he's going to get into heaven or be cast into hell. Now, when theater moved outside, even the records of what theater, what theater looked like were not very intricately detailed. We've got some ideas on how it was formed. Medieval ages. Right. What do you expect? <laughs> well, they weren't writing everything down. They weren't drawing everything out. And they weren't describing everything in detail. I mean, what we know is there they were... They could come up with the sets after they write the play. Yeah, right. <laughs> and we would be none the wiser, right? Oh, Oh, we should have added that. Too bad the play's over. <laughs> all right. Now, there were many staging conventions, but just about all of them had the audience standing or even walking from scene to scene in order to get the whole story. <laughs> oh, my God. What if my legs don't work? How am I supposed to do this? Uh, well, okay, I got a cramp. I can't continue watching the show. <laughs> At some point... Fixed outdoor stages became a thing. So it was stationary in one place. And while surviving records detail the scenery and mechanical devices to tell the stories, there is very little indication to how audiences viewed the plays. Now, one of the best indications of a defined seating structure comes from the account of the passion play performed in the French town of Chateaudun. In that which, sounds Japanese. Uh, how about a little, I know my French isn't great, but it's French. Oh. <laughs> oh. So, oh. From, from this from this town, Chateau Dun, uh, and the Passion Plays there, we know that the audience sat on two rows of benches that were approximately the same length as the stage. Two rows. That's it. Wow, they could not come up with infrastructure then. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't tell why we're losing money on this venture. It's like... <laughs> We pack the house every night. <laughs> Should we put in a third bench? No, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> now, as was conventional, the extreme left side of the stage was known as heaven. And the extreme right side of the stage, from the audience's viewpoint, was hell. Okay. Why would someone sit there then? Right, here we go. If Their bums would be burning. Oh, check it out. Here we go. Check this out. Um, now, uh, these are all the stories that are being seen. So, you know, like if somebody's going to ascend to heaven, they're going go to go to, to stage right and go up. How do they know? How do they know if they're going to go to heaven? How? Well, through the story. You know, you might do a good deed or something and that earns you your, your passage to heaven. So, like I said, uh, left side of the stage from the audience's view is heaven. And heaven usually had beautiful music coming out of it. Ra oh. Yes, radiant scenery could be seen. And audience members could be made at ease with perfumes and incenses. And in hell, it's just a oh, garbage being well, dumped on them. Uh, here we go. This contrasted the hell mouth in which devils made horrific sounds. Pots and pans would be... <laughs> yes, pots and pans clanging together. Thick black smoke would pour out from the tar and other things were burned there. And it smelled Why bad. would anyone sit there then? Okay, check this out. Why oh. don't you just go over to the heaven side? Oh, here. Your bum would be baby smooth. Okay, here, check this out. Also in Hellmouth, uh, all the smoke and the, the, the tar smell and the... Hold on, hold on. This would accompany the blood, feces, and entrails, actual stuff, butchery and surgery refuse that was either piled in the Hellmouth or even smeared on it just to give it that much more of an awful sensory experience. I mean, one doesn't want to go to hell, right? Maybe. I'd <laughs> get you a BFG and head on. So, uh, so I'll take as, two. as you're hinting, it needs to seem undesirable, right? So why would anyone want to sit there? At Chateau Den, the seats nearer to heaven were more expensive. <laughs> that's that, all. That's, that's like a pay-to-win game. Yes, yes, it definitely it's is. It's like... Hey, to beat this boss really quickly, click on this, spend $5. Spend $5, and you don't have to be part of the stage that smells like burning poop. Now, I share all of this to begin to speak how box seats became a thing. 
Now, by the end of the medieval period, there is not a single standardized method of audience seating, but there were some indications that paying a higher price for tickets did get the purchaser something better than most patrons at the same performance. Then the next major period in Western theater comes about. The Italian Renaissance, okay? This is where we start to get a standardized convention of stationary seating. Now, if you go back and listen to episode 27 on 3D perspective in Italian stage design, you'll know just how important it was for an audience to be focusing their attention in the same general area so the idea of 3D perspective could be manifested. Now, so in order to do this, the theater building had to be designed so that all the spectators were looking at the same general area, kind of like the church setting. And now that theaters were indoors again, they needed to be designed so they could get in as many attendees as as possible. This was to ensure that the cost of production was covered and that the show could have the potential of turning a profit. Makes sense, right? You want to get as many people to come to your show so you get all that ticket money, right? So just pay more money. Well, now this, okay, we're, you're getting so ahead of me So just make here. more stuff. <laughs> make more stuff or make To your, get more money. Or just make your show more expensive, right? True. Just say, oh, you really want to you see need, this. You need $50. $50, but it's a guy with a, a, a couple symbols and he's just smashing them together. Yeah, 50 bucks. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, hey, you want to see someone go to heaven? <laughs> One billion dollars. There you go. Yep. That, that's just a scam at uh, that point. That is a scam. You're not wrong. So in order to make sure that in an Italian Renaissance theater that we were getting as many attendees in as possible, the seating area was divided into three parts. First one, called the pit. What? <laughs> okay. Why would... Like, is it, what kind of pit okay, is it's it? It's not an armpit, Smarty. Um, <laughs> all right, so No, the I pit. mean, like, they just dug a hole in the ground, and then well. they just put people in there? <laughs> hey, you can't even see, hey, sit here. Yeah, you're down here in the hole. No, 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 no. This refers to the open space on the floor in front of the stage, and it would, uh. expand, it would extend to the back wall of the viewing space. Now, yeah. More often than not, the pit was filled with noisier but less interested patrons because the pit generally had no seats. Sucky. Right? Standing. What? Hey, why don't we just stand around for three hours? Oh my god, yeah. So therefore, the pit patrons, it was because they had to stand, their tickets cost a lot less. Why would you do that to yourself? That's well, like I mean, you taking know, a cold shower. But... But torture. What if you're somebody who can't afford a nicer seat? You can at least still go to the theater. You can literally just bring a blanket and a pillow. <laughs> but <laughs> but people would cram in there. They'd be like shoulder to shoulder in there. So that's how you get a whole bunch of people to... Hmm. Yeah. It doesn't seem that good as a seat. <laughs> not, a, not a great option for anybody. Okay. So here's the second type of seating. The... Uh, boxes and galleries into the walls of the viewing space tiers of viewing areas were built on top of one another so it's just like you were saying you know around the walls there's all those seats dug into the walls and stuff right now anyone who has seen a classic opera house should be kind of familiar with this okay I've seen yep the galleries would often have a backless bench or a few rows of benches and could fit quite a few patrons but you could sit down Okay. The, the back couldn't, could probably not see anything. Right, yeah. They're <laughs> just like, hey, why don't we pay $45 for the seat and not see any so of the play? So I can look right into the back of this person's head and <laughs> Right. Okay. That's a show right That's there. That's a great show. Now, these seats were sometimes a little more expensive than those in the pit because a patron could have the luxury of being able to sit down through the performance. But prices would get more expensive the closer to the stage the gallery got. Now, boxes were in a class all by themselves. Boxes were individual rooms separated from other patrons by railings or even walls. A box would often only allow a few patrons to sit there. More often than not would include lavish furniture and individual retiring rooms. So you had your own room that you could hang out in before you went to your seat. You hey, go, here's some popcorn and some yes, soda. Exactly. Here's some also cotton yes. candy. Yeah. I mean, you see that in big sporting arenas at this point in this time. Like, you know, yeah. really expensive There's seating. There's also v VIP boxes. Exactly. Uh, which have, like, their own microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
So these ones, these box seats were set aside for the wealthiest patrons and would be closest to the stage in the wall. Now, before I go on, I do have to state that the system of pit boxes and galleries was not necessarily industry standard for all Italian theater buildings. And I detail three very different theater buildings in episode 27 that somewhat adopted this format. But all that being said, it's not too difficult to see the development of a social hierarchy of theater patrons, right? Yep. Like, who are the best people in the house and who are the not best people in the house, right? Who are the best people in the world and who are the absolute bums? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, let's leave Italy and hop over to the UK during the Renaissance. And while the design of the theater buildings was generally vastly different than Italian buildings, the seating area for the audience was pretty similar. The spaces were usually designed with a pit, boxes, and galleries, much like the Italians were. However, we do have to remember that in the UK, there were two types of theater spaces, the private and the public. Okay? Now, it isn't necessarily exclusively true, but private theaters were generally inside, and public theaters were outdoors. Okay, let me clarify this. Uh, of the records we have, most public theaters were multi-sided open-air buildings with no roof and at least three tiers of galleries and boxes. Well, I mean, the, the galleries and boxes had a roof, but over the pit, there was nothing. Then then it's not private. Yeah, it's not very private, is it? It's not very okay. private Okay, hold if on. it's full of rich people. Oh, hold on. It's not always full of rich people. I'm going to clarify that here in just a minute. Mm. Okay. Now, the seating capacity for an outdoor theater ranged from, like, 1,500 to 3,000 people. Ooh. That's a lot, okay? However, indoor theaters generally could only seat about 650 to 750 spectators. Because they were built indoors into already existing spaces, they were somewhat limited by what each space could handle. Therefore, to meet the expense of production, indoor theaters had to charge more per ticket and therefore gave off the impression that they were restrictive to poorer ticket buyers, and therefore achieved the moniker of private, while the outdoor theaters could charge less for the tickets in the pit, and thus became known as public. So I'll describe just a bit of what it was like to be an audience member in a British Renaissance theater. First of all, like I was alluding to... Proper. Proper. <laughs> first of all, the cheapest tickets were in the pit, and they were also known as the penny seats. Because you can probably get a seat for a penny. Go spend this penny on a really crappy seat. Yes, exactly. The theater building itself was something of a multi-sided polygon. Some buildings were noted to have 17 to 21 sides. That's not a church. No. That's a circle. <laughs> it's a, not even a circle. It's just a weird blob. <laughs> I, I, I just... I can't figure out why they just couldn't go, well, can we just have four sides? No. I, I want to be creative. That's right. And I want bold. this to be a trichodecahedron or whatever it's called. I, I anyway. want this to be a monstrosity. Yes, I need it to be horrible. <laughs> okay. There was no architectural standard, but they all ended up looking something like this. Now, surrounding the pit were several tiers of terraced seating. Only Terraced? Uh, terraced. Not terrorist. <laughs> Just like, Let me try to say that again. Say? Surrounding the pit were several tiers of like stadium style seating, like in a movie theater you'd see today. Okay, Generally, it was only about two or three stories tall. And just like the Italian opera houses, built into the galleries closest to the stage were several boxes, which became known as Lord's Rooms. So they're only meant for kings? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Now, during performance, vendors would often wander through the crowd selling apples or oranges and even little bottles of ale, similar to modern-day sporting events. And if you're one of those theater goers who always has to excuse themselves to the bathroom multiple times during performance, you might not be appreciated in this time. Remember, there was no running water. And thus, no plumbing. So you better have good knowledge of where the nearest bucket was, or you'd have to walk all the way to the river and back during performance just to relieve yourself. So you're not appreciated. Well, and it was all, you know... Why don't it, you just have a bucket in your seat? Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> that would be horrible. Oh, jeez. Oh. 
they have to clean those out for every performance? That's the worst. Oh my gosh. They get new buckets. They get new buckets. <laughs> Bring your own bucket. Oh, jeez. Make your own bucket. Make Bring your own, your own oh, bucket. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's get back on track here. Now. This architectural design, again, allowed for the social classes to be fairly divided, and basically you knew your place in the social pecking order. As far as the behavior of the standing patrons in the pit, a.k.a. the groundlings, they were generally associated with being rather raucous and sometimes disruptive. They were the poorer classes, after all, and therefore the least educated. But still, the groundlings were generally interested in the proceedings on stage. So they're just smooth brain. (laughs) I guess you could call it that. (laughs) Not by choice, but... (laughs) But by force. But you can even see in like the writings of Shakespeare how he would play, he would write his works to have things that appealed to the wealthier patrons and the lower class patrons. So, you know, you might have uh, some things where you're talking about somebody's misunderstanding of the law and then you have a butt joke. Now, instead of focusing on the groundlings behavior, I would rather like to talk about the reputation of the box seats in British Renaissance theater. I alluded to them before. The boxes were known as the Lord's Rooms. Often, before or even during performance, special attention may be paid to the attendees in the Lord's Rooms as they may have been sponsors of the play or theater. They may have been celebrities or sorts, but most often those of nobility were praised just for being there. So before the play begins, you know, say, and I'd like to thank the Earl of Oxford for... Attending today, and the Earl would stand up and Now, another interesting reputation started to develop around the Lord's Rooms. As you may recall from the pilot episode, The Consequences of the Interregnum, the Puritans more or less were able to get the practice of theater banned because they believed it encouraged lives of lasciviousness. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure when the rumor started or what the effects of it were, but pr- history is pretty sure that the Puritans started spreading the rumor that prostitutes would buy all of the lord's rooms basically basically as recruiting or advertising centers (laughs) we're over here we bought the nice room we bought some soap you want some you want some soap come on over Uh, i can't even see what what the puritans point to that was other than to just give it a bad name all right now before i move on I'll briefly touch on the private theaters and their pricing structure. And this is where things start to look a little bit more like today. Indoor theaters were not just used for theater. Uh, They often have reported to have civic debates, uh, sometimes surgeries for the public to view. That did happen a lot. What? Yep. Yep. People would watch a surgery. They would pay because it was fascinating. Fascinating? Yes. Yes. Like somebody was showing you an advanced medical knowledge. Oh God, he died. He died, but I found it. I found found it. it. Does anyone want to see his heart? Hey, yeah. Show me the heart. Okay. (laughs) But frequently the indoor theater spaces were used for other methods of popular entertainment, such as cockfights or bear baiting. Why would people do that? That's torturing farm animals correct it is but it was darn good fun apparently i don't think so but that's just yeah that's what they did and bear baiting you know what bear baiting is they bait the they i have no idea all right bear baiting is where they actually capture a wild bear and chain it to the wall and let things go attack it like dogs or people why didn't they just chain a human to the wall and yeah. let wild animals <laughs> Just let's watch him. Well, we just watched the surgery. Well, we just watched the surgery, but way more violent. This one's a lot quicker. (laughs) Hey, oh my God, where's his guts? They get the the guts out of there fast at a a, okay. But hey, check this out. This is even a suggestion where the word cockpit may have come from, because cockfighting would take place in the pit. Therefore, cockpit. Why am I so disappointed? I know, right? Now, when an indoor theater was used for the active theater, the galleries along the back wall were usually the cheapest seats in the space. Indoor theaters would often have boxes, which again were the more expensive seats, but indoor theaters would often accommodate their audience by providing benches in the pit during performance. And the tickets That's would, even nicer than right, the pit. Right? And, gradu- and the tickets would gradually get more and more expensive the nearer the seat was to the stage. 
In fact, this might be one of the first instances in which, for top price, seats could be purchased on the stage on the very extreme left or right side. Now, this actually would pop up several times through the next several centuries until the practice was somewhat frowned upon closer to the end of the 19th century. So it became a thing to buy more expensive seats on the stage. Now, it gets to why that was kind of important here in just a moment because it's coming up that when you went to theater, you didn't just go to watch the show. You want, you went there to be seen going to the theater. Why would you do that? Mm. Why would anyone do that? Yeah. Okay. Now, up until the end of the 19th century, like I just left off, the practice of going to the theater to be seen was a particular bit of fun for the upper class. And to illustrate that, I've got a fun few stories about the snootiness of the purchases of box seats. The first is something of an epilogue to the story told in our first episode. As you may recall, after the Elizabethan age, the Puritans put a lockdown on all theatrical activity in London from 1642 to you 1660. You can't even say a line from Shakespeare. Oh, man. Well, I mean, it's just like, yeah. to be or to not to be, get him, get him! Throw him in the stocks! Now, when the Puritan regime ended and King Charles II came back from his exile in France, this began the period known as the Restoration. This period was well known for... Exuber for just exuberant ornateness in just about everything that could be observed with the eyes. Fashion, architecture, furniture design, hairstyles, just about everything was super fancy. Now, everything's super fancy, and this included decoration and design of theater buildings. So in the Restoration, theaters moved primarily back indoors, and the theater again began to look more like the opera houses we talked about before. However, there were some changes. The pit generally now had fixed seating, so you could actually sit down in the house. Oh my God, it feels oh my so God, nice. It's been hundreds of years. Oh my God, my butt feels amazing. Oh, I could do this for a couple hundred years, honestly. As well, okay, so the pit now generally had fixed seating, as well as the several tiers of boxes and galleries. But in this time, theater was primarily only attended by the upper class and was more of a place to see and be seen. They loved the theater and would watch the plays for the most part. Sometimes they would answer back to the actors on stage with their own colorful commentary or loudly making plans on what to do after the play was over, or they may just simply loudly get up and leave. Woo, woo, woo. Oh, <laughs> all right, I'm done. Yeah, I'm done. Let's go get drunk. Let's, let's go play some golf. Now let's go play some, let's play some golf right now in here. Woo. <laughs> now, as I've mentioned before, the box seats were generally the most expensive. And also, as I've said, if they were the most expensive then it can be assumed that the whole audience would probably be talking about whoever is in the box seats. Mm. Well, to continue from episode one, you may remember that King Charles was notorious for having a number of very public mistresses outside his marriage to his queen. True. Yep. His queen could not provide him with an heir at all. She was unfortunately not able to have children. Yep. And That's the sad truth. It, it, dun, really, dun. it really is. Uh, and, and while this could be used as something of an excuse for his philandering, frankly, Charles II just enjoyed being as frivolous as he wanted to be, and he loved for his public image to represent that. Thus, when he attended the theater one night, his box seat was right next... Well, his box was right next to the box attended by Nell Gwynn, an actor who had the night off and was attending the theater in her spare time. Nell was actually famous in London for her good looks and her acting talent, particularly in comedies. The two struck up ver a very flirty conversation, having famously met before with some noted immense flirting. When they met at the theater that fateful night, the flirting picked right back up. And of course, they were in the box seats closest to the stage, so everyone in the audience except for those in the galleries above their seats could see them. Ooh. Oh my. God, they're flirting. They're flirting. They're flirting. And, but, I wonder what's gonna happen. But she was almost as famous as him. I nice. mean, they, yeah. It, 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 I mean, it's hard to find someone as famous as a king. king. <laughs> so, I'll fast forward to the end of this story. <laughs> Nell Gwynn eventually bore two of Charles' many illegitimate children. Of course, Charles moved on to other women. 
but always thought fondly of Nell. Apparently on his deathbed, he whispered, Let not poor Nelly starve. So he's just a pervert. He's kind of a pervert. Oh, she was fine. Uh, she did have quite a bit of debt upon Charles' death, but Charles' successor, James II, made sure that all of her debts were paid. But none of these debts had to do with living expenses. And this is going to get kind of complex. I don't even understand it. People are going to listen to this and go, no, that's not how that works. But this That's is- not how it works at no. all. But this is... So yeah. you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't gotten those fun uh, hate mail pieces yet, but this Yay. is still fun. Actually, no, I did get one about... You got one. One. Doesn't it was great. Doesn't mean you got... No, no, it doesn't. You're right. Okay, so uh, this all has to do with the laws about owning property and everything in England. So my my understanding of it, being an American citizen, is pretty rudimentary. But I'm going to try to explain this to you very well because you're currently a fifth grader and probably don't know anything about property laws in any country. So here we go. I know that you own the home, but you still have to pay if you underpay it. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I don't own my home. A bank owns my home and I pay the bank right now until that's totally paid off. Now, like I said, Nell's debts were paid in full by James II, Charles' successor. None of these debts had to do with her living expenses. You see, Charles had a home built for Nell at number 7 Paul Mall, which is a street address, very near his official residence at St. James Palace. Charles took Nell there and presented her with the deed to the estate of the, the brand new home he had built there at number, uh, number 79 Paul Mall. Upon reviewing the deed, Nell frowned, and the king inquired about her now crestfallen appearance. In the document, the house was listed as a leasehold to the crown. Okay. Now this means that the property still belonged to the crown and the tenant could live there for a price or until the crown decided to terminate the lease. Okay. Nell was not pleased with this house being a leasehold at all. She demanded that the king make it a freehold, which more or less means that the occupant owns the property outright. Okay. Nell is reported to have said, As your majesty well knows, I have always served freely under the crown, and I expect a freehold in return. (laughs) You have demanded my, air quotes, services for free long enough. Give me a house. I don't mean to be too adult with my my young son here, but I mean, you know, uh, she's a mistress. But she's demanding that I have been giving you goods and services for years for free. Time for you to pay up. So that just makes him even more of a pervert. Even more of a pervert, correct. He's just just an outright pervo. Now flabbergasted and somewhat defeated, the browbeaten king scratched out the word leasehold and replaced it with freehold. Thus, Nell owned the property and never had to pay anything for it. To this very day, the property at number 79 Pall Mall is the only piece of land in the Crown Estate to be under freehold. (laughs) Because King Charles was a pervert and needed his girl close to him. (laughs) All right. Next, we're going to jump a lot closer to our time. Okay. A date that is important to you. December 19th. Yes! And what is that? My birthday. There you go. However, in 1904, you weren't really around. December 19th... I was a ghost. You were... (laughs) You were a plan far, far back. December 19th, 1904 was to be the opening of the new Coliseum Theater in London, which still stands in the same spot today. The original owner and proprietor, Sir Oswald Stoll hired a very famous architect to design the building, and some of the technical elements that were built into the stage were truly innovative, despite not working consistently. By this time, it was rather customary for theaters to build a special box specifically for royalty or celebrity guests, and this became known as the Royal Box. Okay, Or it could be, in, in America, the President Box, or a Presidential Box, or something. Now, speaking of not working consistently... Oswald also asked the architect to design a new device with the current king in mind, something of a transport system from the royal entrance to the royal box. So in a lot of theaters, if you have like a special guest, they take that person through a special room instead of with uh, the rest of the crowd in like the normal audience so that they 
you know, don't get attacked or they don't get mobbed by fans or whatever, you know what I mean? Stoll had this idea of a transport system from the royal entrance to the royal box in mind because of the current king, Edward VII, was a rather portly man. <laughs> so he's pretty much just fat. His nickname was Tum Tum. I'm not kidding. Tum, 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 tum. Yep. In fact, check this out. It is still fashion that when a man wears a vest or a waistcoat to leave the bottom button unbuttoned simply because Edward couldn't button the bottom one. <laughs> so everyone else just did it to make it fashionable. But in this case, long walks for Edward tired him out quickly. And remember, the box seats in theater were places to be seen. So Edward was Edward was also known for having a horrendous temper. So if he were to look flustered in public, it might just agitate him even more. <laughs> oh, Why man. is he so fat? I don't know. Sometimes he's fat that and aggressive. Yeah, he's fat. He's aggressive. fat. He's fat. <laughs> All right. So Stoll. Uh, Sir Oswald Stoll, the theater owner, requested that the architect make something of a rail car that would start at the royal entrance. Once the royal party entered, they would get on a car that would move from the entrance through the foyer directly to the anteroom leading to the royal box. The entire distance from the royal entrance to the royal box was about 30 feet. <laughs> A short walk tires the guy out. And they're trying to give him a safe face. You know? He, he can't even move three steps without passing out. Uh-huh. He's so, just that fat. Yep. So the night of the opening night had to be postponed because on December 19th, an incredibly dense and characteristic fog fell on London. Because winter. Well, yeah. I mean, it was the middle of winter. And this is this is something that happens in, in London all the time. But that would cause all sort of problems. Like, you know, I mean, there, there was some electricity, but, you know, you're still having things. Uh, uh, people are still riding carriages and everything. And it's difficult to see other carriages. You don't want to crash into another carriage. Plus, uh, you know, people who had asthma couldn't really breathe in the deep <laughs> fog. Exactly. The new opening night was set for Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1904. King Edward and his queen, Alexandria, arrived Why would you do that? Would you just sleep in the theater and then you'd have like 20 presents at, at, at the Christmas tree? <laughs> that could be fun. That could be fun. So... King Edward and his queen, Alexandra, arrived at the theater early, and it wasn't too far of a ride from the residence. They were attended by some mounted police and dispatched cavalry. They arrived at the entrance and marveled at the new machine for a moment before happily stepping in, this, this boxcar thing, right? Upon the pressing of the button, the car jerked lightly and started slowly and silently on its way from the entrance to the royal box. <laughs> I said slowly and silently. <laughs> About halfway across the foyer, the car slowed to a stop. The operator, knowing the king had a volatile temper, furiously started to work to get the car started again, but nothing was working. Sir Oswald Stoll, the theater manager, was in the car with the king and kept nervously looking at the king to see if he would have one of his tremendous outbursts. Looking at curious onlookers in the foyer, who were just watching the king. Like not be able to get to his box and just sit in a broken boxcar. King surprised everyone and burst out into laughter, which then allowed everyone to do the same. And the whole party got out and walked the remaining 15 feet to the royal box. <laughs> Are you trying not to? <laughs> like That's one of those laughs that you can't, you suck in and you can't get the air out. Okay. All right, here we go. Ready for one more? This is my favorite story regarding box seats and royal boxes, okay? And we're going to go back in time just a little bit more, but we're going to stay in it's London. It's a time machine. It's a time machine, this story. Okay, so like I said, we're going to go back in time just a little bit more, but we're going to stay in London. After the American colonists foiled the British forces during the American Revolutionary War, Britain's King George III was in a funk. <laughs> George was known for his respect for the livery and detail of proper society and was just beside himself when he sent the best soldiers he had to America only to have them beaten by what he considered to be a ragtag group of ruffians. Hi. 
Staying alive. Staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> now, in fact, he was seeing it all over the place, all over Europe, as something very similar. It happened several years later in France. The bourgeois was foisted by the rabble. So in order to calm himself, he would take in the arts. Now, sometime in the late 1790s, George meant to attend a theater performance at the Theater Royal Drury Lane, which we've talked about several times on this program. His carriage was surrounded by royal guards, and they stopped near the royal entrance with enough distance that his constituents could see him, but also gave the guards enough time to stop any potential assassination attempts. The king went through the usual rituals. He strode to the door where he was met by the theater manager who bowed graciously and showed him through the door. Inside, when the king stepped into the foyer, he was met with applause from all the other attendees who had box seats that evening. Look at us, aren't we important? You're the most important. There's just like one person in the theater. He's just, just going, like... yeah, way to go. You lost America. <laughs> nice work. You lost an entire country. Yeah, way to go. It's not like dropping your keys and you can't find them again. <laughs> you lost you an can't. entire country. You can't get those back. You can't get them back. Yeah. All right, now. So there he is. He steps in. He's feeling good. People are applauding him. So he's finally able to kind of relax a little bit and go, okay, things aren't so bad. The mood immediately darkened as there was some hubbub coming from outside. Also planning to attend the theater that night was King George III's son, George Prince of Wales. Here he strode flamboyantly and proudly with his coterie of guards and friends. These two pretty much hated each other. Here's a quote. Somebody's going to die tonight. Oh, God. Check this out. There had been a tradition throughout the 18th century of kings and princes of Wales being at odds with each other, but never before had there been such a venomous level of ill feeling and mutual loathing as between this king and prince. <laughs> I mean, I didn't look into it too much. I just went, okay, things are bad between these two. It's just like two snakes fighting. Just Yeah, there's... <sighs> okay. Plus, after losing the American colonies, King George III was prone to violent fits of rage, which one of those eventually caused him to go quite insane. Wow. For the last 10 years of his life, Prince George served as Prince Regent, just waiting for his father to die, which basically means the king is still alive. Die, die, no, 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 no. No, he never did that. Uh, maybe he did, I don't know. Prince George had to serve as Prince Regent, which basically meant he was the acting king while the king was still alive. So, yeah. Not anymore. Uh, so anyway, back to Drury Lane. Amidst all this hubbub, because people knew about the animosity between the two Georges and wanted to see what would happen, Prince George entered the foyer. Here's a quote. Good evening, father, said the prince, bowing to the king in a way that managed to combine a casual approach with an exaggerated deference that suggested complete contempt. So how would that be? Like, I'm trying to show good face. I'm trying to also show you that I hate your stinking guts with the words... Good evening, Father. Good evening, Father! <laughs> That's a little more hardcore. The king did not offer a verbal response. Rather, he tightened up his fist as a Hulk-like rage burned in him. He didn't yell. He didn't offer a duel. He simply marched up to his son, and he punched him square on the side of the head, driving him to the ground. The king knocked the prince to the ground in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> that that king just turned just, super saiyan. Yeah, he goes, good evening, father. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Bam! Now the prince was still conscious and the king just stand, stood there glowering over him. The captain of the guard stood between the two Georges, not so much expecting retaliation from the prince, but rather to prevent the king from delivering any further damage to his son. <laughs> This is stranger because you're my dad. Yep. And I'm your son. Yep. You would never punch me in the freaking side of no, the head. No, much less if we were royalty and we were in public. <laughs> that guy has some guts. Oh, oh my God. Yes. Well, he was just. No guts, no glory. No guts, no glory. Okay. Now. <laughs> Completely gobsmacked, the theater manager was able to get the king up the stairs to the royal box. But as he did so, another problem came to his mind. Where are we going to seat the prince? 
We can't possibly have them in the same box, and the prince will probably not take anything less than the royal box. Well, fortunately, the prince thought better of it and disappeared into the night to find some other entertainment. Would it be hysterical if we went bowling? (laughs) (laughs) I got punched in the head. Let's go bowling. So, problem still remained. No one knew how long the king was going to live, but the two Georges were frequent visitors of the theater. George I and George II. Yeah, well, this is George III and George of Wales, I th- who, when, when his father died, he became George IV. Okay. George IV and George V? Yeah, are we talking about George Foreman, the boxer now? Right. <laughs> you have no idea. I went to college with one of his sons. Anyway, so a new and costly solution was presented, and work got started right away. Across the house from the royal box construction on a new royal box began and when it was finished the theater royal drury lane would have two royal boxes the king's box and the prince's box and it remains this way to this day the left side of the house is the king's side just because his father punched his son in the (laughs) face (laughs) they had to build something completely different (laughs) Hey, uh, someone just slapped someone in the face. Well, we, we just we gotta, we gotta, uh, re, we gotta remake this okay. entire thing. <laughs> so yeah, like I was saying, the left side of the house is now is still the king's side. The right side of the house is the prince's side. And to my knowledge, it is the only house in Europe, or possibly even the world, with two royal boxes. And today, box seats are sometimes the priciest seats in the house, but the most expensive ones are usually in the pit closest to the stage. What? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? Audiences today choose their seats for a variety of reasons, but I'd not just price. I'd sit in the middle. Cause yeah? That's, that's, that's between mm-hmm. the highest priced and the lowest right. priced. Right. And there is still something to be said about who can afford these seats and just who can see them there. And that's the story of box seats for today. God. We got a lot of stuff talked about there. So there, that's an interesting thing you're saying. I'd just rather sit in the middle. It's better than the back seat okay because you can't see anything and in the front seat everything seems too close oh okay okay like in the middle is it's like goldilocks too much like too (laughs) hot just right just right (laughs) see i actually got to see one of my favorite comedians like if if, like it's what kind of thing is on stage right if it's a comedian you would obviously want to sit in the i want to try to sit up front right and i or like the second row yeah this comedian was playing and and he's he was very famous comedian he's died now his name is george carlin but he was my favorite comedian while he was alive and uh it was when i was living up in seattle still and he was performing at a symphony hall lots of seats lots of seats like 3,500, 4,000 seats, something like that. I got there on the day that uh, he was supposed to perform, and uh, sometimes when it's same day, you can get special price tickets. So I got special price tickets, and they go, where do you want to sit? And I looked, and second row was available. And the box office attendant was like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. That's really close to the stage. I'm like, yeah, I am aware. That's why I want to buy it. <laughs> But that I, person does not know anything about comedy. Yeah, that person's more used to selling tickets for the symphony. And when you go to the symphony, sitting right up front like that, it's very hard to hear everything. You know, you more likely will want to sit near the walls or kind of in the middle. So you get a more appreciative and fuller sound. But yeah, they weren't really aware of like what my wishes were as a theater attendant. It was kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. So... There you go, box seats. What do you think? I think it was really good. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of box seats now? Mm. Uh. <laughs> My brain is confuzzled. Yep, it's tied up in a knot. I think we're all confuzzled because because my brain now is just a noodle. Yep, there we go. That was another episode of Euripides Humanities. I really appreciate it, Ethan. I'm glad you were at least well enough. And for uh, Euripides Humanities, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, signing off. I'll be back to you in another two weeks, and I will see you at intermission.